0: Thank you for joining us for the lessons from First Naz Podcast. I'm going to read for us now Romans chapter 2. I'm going to read a big section of scripture here. I'm going to read a big section of scripture. Uh, and so follow along and uh, read with me. I'm going to read all of Romans chapter 2 and a little bit of Romans chapter 3. And so follow along if we you will. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God, in his justice, will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment When you do the same thing, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Now verse 5. But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For the day of anger is coming, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth, instead live lives of wickedness. They, are, they will be in trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. When the Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed, even though they have never had God's written law. And the Jews who do have God's law will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written on their hearts, For their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. You who call yourselves Jews are relying on God's law, and you boast about your special relationship with him. You know that he wants, uh, you know what he wants, you know what is right because you have been taught his law. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God, for you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it is wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but you use items stolen from pagan temples. You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder that the scriptures say the Gentiles blasphemed the name of God because of you. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision was value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles who obey God's law won't declare, won't, uh, sorry, and if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law, but don't obey it. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents and because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God, and true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by God's Spirit, and the person with the changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. Now, beginning in chapter three, then what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? Yes, there are great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. True, some of them were unfaithful, but just because they were unfaithful, does that mean God will be unfaithful? Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right in what you say, and you will win your case in court. But some might say our sinfulness serves a good purpose, for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair, then, for him to punish us? This is merely a human point of view. Of course not. If God were not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? But, someone might still argue, how can God condemn us, condemn me as a sinner, if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? And some people even slander us by claiming that we say the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. Thank you. That is Romans 2, uh, verse 1 through Romans 3, verse 8. And this is the passage I'm looking at for this morning. Uh, It's an interesting passage. I I wonder if you you can relate. Uh, Do you ever talk to yourself? yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh good I'm glad I'm not the only one I like to tell my family I am my own favorite company uh I went I drove down to McCall for a friend's wedding this week Alyssa says aren't you going to be bored no I have my favorite company with me uh, I like to tell my daughters that sometimes I just need intelligent conversation and they <laughs> they don't appreciate that for some reason uh so throughout this passage, Paul, Paul is writing as if he is having a conversation with someone. And he, he actually talks to someone. He's, in the first few verses of chapter 2, he's talking to someone. He calls him you. He says, you, you say, uh, you believe this, you, you act this way. And, and so Paul, Paul is using here uh, this, this idea of, of, of a somebody that he is talking to. And, and the somebody that he's talking to, he keeps bringing up all of these yeah buts and what ifs, and, and how abouts. You know, he's got, the person he's talking to has all of these arguments that, that Paul is trying to counter what Paul is saying, or trying to clarify what Paul is saying. When, when somebody does this in, in writing, the scholars call the, say that Paul is using an interlocutor. Interlocutor is the scholarly word for that. It's a word I've only ever read. I've never even actually said it out loud before just now, interlocutor. So it's uh, the idea that somebody's in a a dialogue with him. You might want to write that down for the quiz later, by the way, interlocutor. Um, This passage is kind of unique in that Paul is using, using a dialogue partner that is it seems to be a specific person. You know, he's writing to a singu- singular you. In a lot of Paul's writings, he talks to you, his readers, but it's a plural you. You know, in in northwestern United Statesian English, we don't have a plural you. In in the south, they say y'all, and and y'all seems to be growing in popularity, but we don't we don't really use that where we talk good English here in the northwest, and so we're. Here where we where we speak clearly, we don't have a plural you. In Greek, Paul had a plural you at his disposal. And so in the Greek language that was Paul's Paul's written communication language, he he used that plural you often. But this passage it's a singular u and he's especially early on in, in chapter two, he's he's just like drilling down on somebody. Somebody is, is coming back at him, and he is drilling down, really trying to, to settle the argument as he, he talks to you, the person that would condemn everybody else. And this this imaginary friend that Paul is talking to is, is somebody that is, is a Jew, somebody who has been following the law of God all of their life, somebody who understands well the, the plan of God for for the Jews in the Old Testament, who is who is well versed with with what was the Bible at the, those at that time, the the Old Testament, and and so uh, Paul Paul kind of sees how this person, this Jewish person who understands their privilege as a Jewish person, would respond to what he has been talking about in chapter one, because. You know, chapter 2, verse 1 comes right on the heels of of chapter 1, and so we kind of need to go back to the end of chapter 1. You you might remember a couple of weeks ago I talked about the last half of Romans chapter 1, and and the last half of chapter 1 in the book of Romans is talking about how rampant sin has become in creation. It's talking about just this overwhelming uh, flood of sin that, that has engulfed all of creation, and all of creation seems to be, to be going away from God. And Paul says, all of creation, every human being is without excuse. God has revealed how perfect and good God is in creation. He has revealed how perfect and good he is and what he expects of people just in, in his handiwork in creation, and he has revealed that to us also by putting it in our hearts. So every human being knows what is right, but we don't necessarily do what is right. And so in, in Romans 1.25, his exact words are that they have traded the truth about God for a lie. And, and Paul says this truth is just plain to see. We are without excuse, he says. Everybody should know the, the plain truth that has been twisted. And then at the end of, of Romans 1, in verses 28 and 29, he, he talks about God's willingness to let people walk away into their sin. He he says they God abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that never should be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception malice or malicious behavior and gossip he goes on he lists the specific sins of pride and breaking promises disobeying parents and not showing mercy and all of this is after after talking very specifically and explicitly about the sexual sin that was rampant in the roman world at the time and so when we arrive at at chapter 2 when we when we turn the page and we're in romans chapter 2 verse 1 the there's a couple of, of positions that we could find ourselves in. If we could look at Romans chapter one, these last the last half of Romans chapter one as a mirror. And we could be we could be feeling condemned. We could be feeling like, oh, I have so far to go. I'm without excuse. God has written it on my heart, and I I have so far to go. We can we can feel the weight of our sin as a result of having read Romans chapter 1. The other way we can go is to put ourselves in the position of becoming judge and jury for everyone else around us, for everyone else who doesn't measure up. And we can turn Romans 1 into a weapon with which we destroy our enemies. We say, God is coming to judge you because here it is, you refuse to understand God is coming to judge you because of your sexual sin. God is coming to judge you, and we, we turn it into a weapon. We, we use it to bludgeon our enemies, tell them all of the ways that they are condemned by God because they don't measure up. And Paul's imaginary friend here, he has set himself up as judge and jury. He said, here we go, here we go. He he reads chapter one, Romans chapter one, about Paul talking about all those sinful people out there, and and he he is excited. He says, Yes, Paul, you're really giving it to him. You go, Paul. You you tell all those sinners how awful they are. You tell them, Good job, Paul. You know, as a preacher, I've heard of preachers who who get the comment at the end of the sermon, You really preached it to them. I've never gotten that. So I, uh, the, the best I've gotten is, oh, it's too bad there weren't young people here to hear that today. Uh, <laughs> hmm, well. But Paul, Paul's immediate response then in, in Romans 2 is to correct, correct anyone who would turn his words so far in the letter into a weapon. And, and he immediately jumps out. He says, you think you can condemn such people, but you're just as bad, and you have no excuse. He, he, he drills home this idea that the person who wants to set themselves up as judge and jury knows what is right and is doing what is wrong. He's trying to condemn the person who is, who is doing the thing that's against the letter of the law, yes, 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 it's against the letter of the law. But they do the same thing. Paul, Paul is, is horrified at the idea that his words in, at the beginning of the letter could be turned into a weapon. And that it could be used to judge others. And so so right here at the beginning of, of chapter 2, he, he turns to damage control. And, and this... This, to me, looks like a point at which Paul, Paul may realize that he's talking to himself. You know, his, as his imaginary friend, his imaginary friend is someone who's just a lot like Paul. A lot like Paul before his conversion to Christianity, especially. Paul sees how, as, as a pious Jewish person, as a Pharisee of Pharisees, he used every means of God's law to judge others. And here paul is is speaking oh, kind of to himself, and maybe if he 's not speaking to himself he's he 's speaking to the human condition because as people, this is just kind of where we, it seems like we have a real tendency to judge others don 't we i don 't want to look around because i I need to talk to myself i i don 't need to talk to anybody else about the the tendency we have as human beings to to judge others, uh, as as people, when when we hear a list of all of the ways that we can we can dishonor God, and we all of the ways that that we can sin, all the ways that we can act wrong, you know, they're backstabbers and haters of God and insolent and proud and boastful. As as we think of all of those, human nature does not usually. Make us think of ourselves first when we hear a list of all of the ways that we, that people can dishonor God. E- human nature tends to make us think about all of those other people that we would like to judge, and and we think about you know how how awful they are. <laughs> George Lyons, who's a retired professor at, from Northwest Nazarene University, he he wrote um, a few years ago. Uh, a large part of the religion of some people seems to consist in their readiness to find fault with others. Uh, we we see the religious game that people play. Oh, sometimes we played ourselves. Of, uh, well, at least I'm not as bad as, right? And and name what it is. At least I don't do this. You know, I may I may gossip every once in a while, but everything I say is true, right? Uh, <laughs> we, we make our religion inaccessible for people who aren't just like us. Um, sometimes we, we crouch the language that we use as concern for a poor lost soul, you know. Uh, I've really been praying for Nancy. I heard she's back to the knitting circle where she's gossiping again, really praying for her soul. Pray with me for Nancy. Or, or more insidious and, and more frequent, is, is the way that we talk about the class of people who acts in that way. You know, some people, all they do in this world, they, they just live to go to knitting circles and gossip. They just spend all of their lives doing that, that awful thing that we would never do. And, and we, you know, we judge and condemn a whole class of people uh, while at the same time giving a hopeless view of our world. Uh, that God is still at work in. Our friend Gene Shandorf wrote recently My Christianity does not empower me to tell others how they should live. It enables me to live as Jesus told me to live. And Gene, Gene clarified I told him I was going to use this quote. He clarified, he, he said, Remember that that applies to, to our relationships outside of the church. As brothers and sisters in Christ, when you see me full of pride, Turn the other cheek. <laughs> um, when, when you see me as a brother or a sister in Christ, when you see me dishonoring God, full of pride, uh, lacking love and compassion, if I lie, if I'm unfaithful to my community or to my family, you have every right to say, you're not living according to Scripture. You have every right as my, my brother or my sister to say that but Jean's quote is applied to, to how believers interact with those outside of the church, reminds us that our faith holds us to a standard. It doesn't hold the people around us to the same standard. It it holds people to, to the standard of faith. You know, if, if you say you are living according to the standard, let's do it. Let's live together according to, to God's standard for us. But if, if we, we, we can't apply that standard to people who don't claim to have faith in Jesus, we should not. And so Paul, Paul says in, in these verses uh, that, that the saving message of the gospel is saving people who, who listen to it and obey it. And, and uh, Paul, Paul is really getting at the heart of obedience to what we understand about God. And, and he's talking about you know in in the circle of the church, but he's talking about how we understand um, what it is to honor God and what it is to not honor God. Because some people, as Paul talks about in this passage, say, "Well, I know the law. Isn't that good enough?" And and Paul's Paul's uh, teaching throughout this this chapter uh, just really goes goes to correct that, because you could read chapter 1, you could read Romans chapter 1 about God writing, showing his, his perfect qualities in all of creation, his invisible qualities were on display through creation since the beginning of time, has without excuse. We could read that in such a way <clears throat> that would make it sound like we are condemned and going to hell any time that we fail to, to live up to the perfection of God you could read that and you could say, God is perfect. God, God is so faithful. God never has, has forgotten to make the sun rise in the, in the east. He has never failed in anything that God has done. And therefore, I have to live to a, to a standard. So I might be sinning because I accidentally wrote a date wrong and uh, Alyssa delivered flowers to somebody's birthday on the wrong day yesterday. Because I messed that up, like you could read it, and God's never forgotten, and so I'm not living up to the perfect perfect standard of God by doing that that might, that might be sin right I mean you could you could get that out of Romans one you you could get the idea that you know even even by moments of innocent instinctive selfishness we we could be breaking god's law and sinning you know the the office party when there's, when there's uh, one slice of pizza left, and yeah, you've already had two, but man, it was so good. And you take that third slice, and then you realize after it's halfway gone that some people have not had any. Well, God's never selfish. Even God never, never forgets to include everyone. And you've failed and, and not lived up to the perfect standard of, of God. And and there are Christians who believe that any sort of deviation from God's perfection is sin. And so if you, you accidentally scratch someone's foot as you are washing it, you may have sinned. And such people would say that you sin in word, thought, and deed every day. And this is the predominant theology that's found in the United States right now. Uh, the, the majority of Christian books that are published are published from, from this perspective, that we sin in word, thought, and deed every day. Um, and and they, offer, they offer no hope of overcoming sin, saying that our only hope is in the mercy of God. Uh, because regardless of how, how mature you come, regardless of how closely you walk with God, you will continue to sin in word, thought, and deed every day. Now, in the Church of the Nazarene, I'd, I'd like to say we get it right about sin. I think, we, I think we have a better perspective on what it is to sin and to miss the mark. We would agree that it is only by God's mercy and grace that we can be made acceptable to God. But we, would, we also believe that God views sin through, through the lens that we see in Romans chapter 2. God sees sin as a willful violation of a known law. God says you need to know what you are doing and not do it. Or know that you shouldn't be doing it and do it in order for it to be sin. And Paul talks over and over in this passage about what, what condemns us, what, what sends us off on the, right, on the wrong path. Right away in at the second part of, of uh, Romans 2, uh, verse 1, he says, When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. Later on down in verse 13, he says, For merely listening to the law of God doesn't make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. The opposite then is true, right? Not every time can you read things opposite and they stay true, but I, I think this is one of those cases where knowing and not obeying is what Paul is saying, uh, or knowing and obeying makes us right. I think Paul would also say, knowing and not obeying condemns us. In in moving forward in verses 14 and 15, Paul talks about the fact that people who have never heard the law of God do right by instinct, as if it is written on their hearts. And he says at the very end of verse 15 that their conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. And then straight to the point in verse 23, talking with his, his imaginary friend, he says, you are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. Paul shows that the expectation of those who, who would honor God is to know and obey the law, to do what is, what is, what is right. It's not necessarily to, to obtain the perfect level of holiness of God. It is not that we would never forget an important date. God does not perfect us and take away our, our forgetfulness. God does not perfect us and take away all of our selfishness. <laughs> we continue to have to walk with him for him to pur- purify us. But Paul's expectation of those who would honor God would be that they would simply do what they know they ought to do and not do what they know they ought not. And our responsibility is, is to know what God expects of us. And so as believers, we study the word so that we can know what God expects of us and, and then to do what God expects. This, is, this puts God in a pretty reasonable light. I don't think God does this just because it's reasonable. I think God does it because it's just. Because just parenting, like being, being just as parents, being, being fair as parents, Means that we don't have expectations for our kids, or we don't punish our kids for expectations that we didn't communicate. We uh, we don't say, "Well, we're taking away this privilege because because you didn't do the thing that you didn't know you were supposed to do." Right? And uh, let me think of an example of this. Got to be careful, right? If we, if you uh, if you don't. Express the expectation is unpacked backpacks and lunchboxes put away after school. You can't punish kids for for not putting away lunchboxes after school, right? And this works in, in at work too, right? Like a, a fair and good employer lets the expectations be known. And when an expectation isn't met, if if it wasn't communicated, well, Then the fair employer says, I'm sorry, I didn't communicate that that was an expectation. And and God is is the same way. God doesn't expect us to do what we don't know. God doesn't expect us... There's no no hidden answer on the final exam with God. There's no secret knowledge that we we need to know and, and have to find before we meet God. There's simply obedience to what we know we ought to be doing. God expects us to do what we know. And so that's why we say in, in the Church of the Nazarene that sin is willfully violating a known law of God. Now talking about, about what is necessary and what God expects from us, Paul, Paul turns the, the page and, well, he, he mixes in here a lot of ideas about what happens to people when they don't fulfill God's expectations for them. He talks about a lot about condemnation and judgment, doesn't he? There's a lot in this passage about condemnation and judgment. About how how his imaginary friend really wants God to just come down so hard on all those sinners. You want God to condemn them. You condemn them yourselves. And, and Paul is uh, is reflecting how his imaginary friend is is just feeling so superior. He's got the Old Testament law hidden in his heart he knows all of the things that all of the ways that people are sinning and and uh, he look he's looking down his nose at everyone below him and by putting these thoughts in the mind of his imaginary friend Paul is is really setting up uh, his imaginary friend as just sort of the classic self-righteous religious person and and Paul. Again, I I really think Paul is probably thinking about himself, the the way that he was before he met Christ, uh, as as Pharisee of Pharisees, looking down his nose at everyone who doesn't observe the law to the extent he does. But he he talks to the, to this person who believes that his righteousness can can be proven also not only by obeying the very letter of the law, but also by his his belonging to the Jews. And he belongs specifically to, to this group, the in-group, the group that is going to make it, the group that is going to avoid condemnation in God's judgment. And, and he talks specifically about how the practice of circumcision made the Jews the group they were. Uh, he, he talks about circumcision as being the proof that someone was in, that someone was obeying the law, someone was right. And, and that they, they were sure to not receive God's judgment because of circumcision. And circumcision goes back beyond the law, really. It goes, it goes back in, to, the, to the earliest collective memory of God's people, back to, to Abraham, who was the first of the patriarchs to, to receive circumcision and, and make sure that his sons and grandsons were circumcised. And Paul observes that the, the Jews really considered their belonging because of their circumcision as the, the sign, the evidence that, that they were acceptable by God. And, and so in, in Romans uh, 3.1, though, he, he asks the question, like, uh, this, he, he, he's been trying to get people away from the idea of understanding circumcision as the way that somebody can know they won't be condemned by God. And so, and so Paul's dialogue partner, Paul's, Paul's imaginary friend, he asks the question, isn't anybody safe from judgment? Is there, is there no group that is safe because they belong to the club and they know the secret handshake and, and they've received all of the, the appropriate religious rites? The question in, in 3, 1, verse, chapter 3, verse 1 is, then what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? And Paul answers immediately in verse 2, yes, yes, there are great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. And from here, Paul Paul then like takes a step back and he says, yeah, not all the Jews have done it perfectly. It's not, it's not always been, you know, perfect following of the law. Some even, even said it's good that we should sin so that God would be shown just. And Paul isn't too impressed by any of this logic if you can imagine god, god God doesn't need God's goodness doesn't need a contrast to show how good it is right truth doesn't need a lie to show that truth is truth um, God's justice doesn't need injustice to show that it is just love doesn't need hate in order to show that it is beautiful and love and and as I read this passage this week i I couldn't help but think the of, of us as believers as as looking into into this conversation that paul's having with somebody who has been so intent on making themselves righteous by the law i couldn't couldn't help but start to wonder if if as the years have gone by as the church has has looked at god 's law written on people 's hearts and then the church has become the group that is the in group right as as the church has become the people who who we have received the full revelation of God, I mean really we 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 have received the full revelation of God, we have Jesus, we have the full revelation um, i couldn't help be begin to read us into the shoes of of paul 's imaginary friend, and i i couldn't begin to to help. As I read and reread this passage, every every time it said Jew, replace it with Christian, and when it talked about circumcision, replacing it with baptism, uh, because when Paul talks about circumcision as the sign of of admission into the group that that people equate with their salvation, I I couldn't, you know, one of the ways that cr- the Christian culture has twisted the idea of baptism is is by saying that's all it takes. If you're baptized, you're good, right? And and uh even in the Old Testament, the prophets talked about how circumcision was useless if it didn't work its way down into your heart. And and so I think the Paul would say to us, baptism is is worthless if it doesn't work our way into our hearts. Uh, we we say when we talk about the b- baptism that it is and outward expression of an inward reality and while baptism is our initiation right well we might raise the question then what's the advantage of being baptized what's the advantage of being being a christian and paul answers there is every advantage there's every advantage because within the church we have received the full revelation of god and and we we experience god's goodness through through this body And as we look at this passage from from the beginning, from chapter 2 on, in this light of of reading rather than reading about the self-righteous Jew, and, and we recognize that sometimes as believers we can take on this attitude of thinking that because we have the full revelation, we ought to be able to condemn those around us. We ought to be able to speak God's judgment upon people who don't measure up. Paul Paul really strikes to our core Uh, because it is easy for us as as believers to think we're we're safe. We're safe, we're good. We've got all of these outward signs. We've we've been baptized. We have the full revelation. Here we are. We're the people of God. We're here on Sunday morning declaring it. We're the people of God. And, And so... How could God ever condemn us? How could God ever judge us? And we have all of, you know, these outward standards. We have the written rules. We have have our social issues that we stand on. We have our religious practices. Um, All this evidence of our salvation. And and Paul... uh, though he doesn't mention it specifically in this passage, over and over in the book of Romans, he's going to bring us back to the gospel. He's going to bring us back, not to a written standard that we need to conform to, but to the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel isn't a rule book. The gospel is a person. The gospel is the grace of Jesus offered to us. And and we forget that the ethic of Jesus isn't a specific practice, but it's the law of love. It's, it's It's this drive we have to get closer to the heart of God. To love God with more and more of ourselves. And the drive we have to share that love with everyone we come into contact with. And unfortunately, we sometimes give love a bad name by, by allowing our exemplary behavior to become reasons to look down our noses and condemn others. The, this passage is really hard on our, on our self-righteousness. As a, as a pastor, I may have a little bit of self-righteousness every once in a while. This passage is really hard on our hypocrisy. If, if we're being honest, we all suffer with it, with hypocrisy and self righteousness. If, if we're being honest, the human condition it just it breeds in us. It makes us naturally bent toward wanting to to put ourselves up there as as the best example that could ever be given. Right. You know, it, it puts us in the position of turning a blind eye to, to our own faults and our own sin and seeing very clearly in the lives of others the sins that, that surely we would never commit those. This passage points us directly to those spots in our lives. And Paul, Paul is going to continue to remind us of all the ways that we fall short. <laughs> he's, he's not done yet. Um, but eventually, he's going to ask us to hide all of those things in Christ. He's, he's going to ask us to, to stop looking at those, those points of our self-righteousness and to look at, look at Jesus to stop making our religion about being better than someone else. And to make our religion about, about our Savior. To stop making our judgmental love really just another way of condemning others. And to focus on our Savior. Sometimes as believers, we, we allow uh, our love and desire for justice to supersede our love for for Jesus. And, and uh, we, we want others to experience condemnation for their sin rather than wanting them to experience Jesus. And so this morning I just invite us to, to spend some time reflecting on the areas in our lives where, where it's easy for us to, to get a puffed up view of ourselves easy for us to to say I'm so good at this and nobody else is as good as me to, to look at our lives and, and think about the areas where where we see so clearly the faults in others Do you know it's really easy to see the faults in others in, in areas that we struggle with ourselves I, I'm sure you've all you've all experienced it that friend that's so sick of of the person who acts just like them. (laughs) It's so easy for us to be blind to things in ourselves that we see in others. When the Lord works on our hearts, he gives us good vision. He gives us good vision to to see others with with eyes of love. And he gives us good vision to see ourselves as we are. God doesn't doesn't give us a general sense of guiltiness. I think in the church, it's been a temptation. It's it's been a temptation to just feel guilty for who we are, for just being, to feel guilty. That guilt does not come from the Lord. The Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit convicts, the Holy Spirit tells us why we are guilty. When, When God tells us we have done wrong, that God tells us what it is we have done. God's spirit doesn't rest on us and make us feel guilty for being human. God tells us, this is the area where I'm calling you into a new phase. When God speaks to us, we know what we need to do. And so God's God's not, you know, the worry of this message is that people who have sat in church all their lives would begin to just feel guilty for being who they are. I'd ask you to just have God tell you where it is, where your blind spots are. If he doesn't reveal anything, praise him. (laughs) And wait. (laughs) Wait, because the Lord will, will always eventually give us those areas where he's calling us to grow. Don't walk out if you're just feeling guilty to to feel guilty. Walk out if you're knowing where the Lord is working on you today. Will you stand with me and let me pray for you? The altar's open if you'd like to to lay anything before him. If you'd like to just draw near and and start asking what it is that he would he would have you work on today in your life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence that's with us. As we breathe in, we're reminded that you have never abandoned us, that our very breath is a gift from you, that you are close. Your presence, your intimacy with us, Lord, gives you an amazing perspective on our lives. You see the areas, Lord, where we struggle with them, and because we struggle with them, they, they annoy us and the people that we see those, those faults in. And we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us and show us our hypocrisy. You see us, Lord, so well. You know our innermost thoughts. You know where we are quick to condemn others for doing the very things that we ourselves do. We pray that you, you would show us where you were working. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to respond to you and to your mercy not with a sense of generalized guiltiness but with a sense that you have areas in our lives that you're still working on with the sense that you you have issues in our hearts that you want to deal with You are preparing us, Lord, for eternity in your presence, where no darkness will be tolerated. And so, God, we give you permission to light up those dark corners in our hearts, those grudges that we hold on to, those people that we want to condemn as guilty. We allow your light to shine and purify us. To make us more like your son Jesus, who loved so perfectly. Help us, Lord, to be a friend of sinners like Jesus. To be so quick to show mercy. so ready to reveal your grace. The people around us would think, what's happened to them? They love sinners. They like to be with people who don't know Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be, to be so quick to see in ourselves the areas that you are perfecting. We would open up our hearts the purifying work of your Spirit. Thank you, God, for the work you're doing in this place right now. We thank you that your work won't finish when we say amen and walk out. You'll continue to work on us through this week and call us to be more like Jesus. I pray for my brothers and sisters who, who, because of their faithfulness to you and desire to be faithful to you, have struggled with just feeling guilty for who they are. I pray, Lord, that you would give them freedom to know your mercy, <laughs> to know that you love them. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to point out those areas that each of us can be perfected and made more like Jesus. Thank you, God. You're so good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. Go into his presence this week. You're dismissed.